welcome to the latest Experts in the Field podcast from Foot Anstey's Farm, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights and practical advice on rural developments and current affairs. Today we're discussing the issue of nuisance claims in rural areas. Sadly, there's an increasing risk of neighbours falling out, particularly when tensions between competing land uses come up against each other. In this episode, we'll look at private nuisance, public nuisance and statute nuisance, look at when those sorts of claims might arise, who is entitled to bring those sorts of claims, and how to defend a nuisance claim if you find yourself in the unfortunate circumstance of being the subject of one. This week, I'm really pleased to say that we're joined by Jane Lars from our Farms, Estates and Rural Land team, and Tim Williamson from our regulatory team. Like myself, both deal with these types of claims uh, in terms of pursuing and defending them. Welcome both. Thank you very much, Edward. Hi, Edward. Nice to be here. Great. So to start off with, um, can we talk about a little bit what are nuisance claims? Uh, Jane, first, perhaps you. Uh, yeah. So there are actually three types. I think I'll cover the first two, and then I think my colleague Tim is going to cover the last. Uh, so firstly, private nuisance. Uh, and this is where a landowner is doing or not doing something on their land which they are legally entitled to do or the consequences of their action or inaction interfere substantially with the ordinary use of the land of their neighbour. So for example, escaping noise or odour onto a neighbouring property. Secondly, there's public nuisance. And this is where a landowner or a private individual does something or doesn't do something that material interferes with the comfort or the quality of life of the public as a whole or a section of the public. Uh, Tim, can you talk a little bit about um, statutory nuisance, a claim we've all been working on together recently involves statutory nuisance? Yeah, we have indeed. Absolutely. That's right. The third type of nuisance is statutory nuisance. So the idea here is that there are certain things that are enshrined in law. And it's possible that if we look at the Environmental Protection Act from 1990 to think about types of nuisance that could be harmful to health. And so we have to look at the matters listed within the Act And if there is evidence of one of those, then a statutory nuisance may be said to exist. When we're thinking about what those are, that would be smoke, fumes, noise from premises or or vehicles, dust and animals. So those are the the types of nuisance that, that might be said to amount to a statutory nuisance as defined in that particular statute. So, um... Tim, can you talk a little bit about when uh, nuisance claims are likely to arise in a rural context? Obviously, that's the focus of this podcast series. Absolutely. Um, If we think about hardworking farmers, what they do on their land, the nature and extent of their operations, well, what sort of nuisance might we be talking? Noise is one. Smell, obviously, from cattle or, or silage, or if we think about muck spreading. Pollution, again, that might be a public nuisance as well, but it could still be a a private nuisance. If we think about public nuisance, so we're talking about a nuisance to a a wider section of the public, well, blocking or limiting access from more than one person to that section of the public, to a public right-of-way, perhaps, or to a highway. Pollution is indeed the obvious example when we think about waterways or drinking water or pollution from noxious or, or from harmful chemicals. A lot of people listening to this podcast might be thinking, well, blimey, that sounds quite dramatic. It sounds quite expansive. That could be really problematic for me, couldn't it? What sort of protections are there? What sort of inbuilt protections might there be? And I suppose by way of reassurance, what I would say is that 
courts will always strive to maintain a balancing act, right? Taking into account the intensity of the interference with a person's rights. How often does this actually occur in practice? Construction traffic might happen, but it, it's unlikely to happen very often, isn't it? And there is also within the, the process a mechanism to think about the locality itself. You know, there is this idea that, well, actually, we're, we're in a rural area here. And so everything has to be seen in its proper context. It's very important to stress that at the outset. And they'll have to think about as well, what is the impact on the reasonable person? So not a hypersensitive person, but a, the reasonable person. So for as much as the types of nuisance that exist are expansive, and as we'll doubtless talk about in a bit, in our experience, potentially problematic, there is a way in which the courts can, can mitigate the ostensibly the hardship of this. And statutory nuisance as well is, is slightly different. You still have to have either a private or a public to get to a statutory. So you wouldn't have a statutory nuisance if there wasn't either a public or private in the first place. But if you do have that and you're within uh, the categories identified in the statute, then you'll be looking at potentially having to defend a claim for statutory nuisance. In the rural context, thinking about drawing on our experience, I would say animals being located in an unsuitable location, perhaps flies. Flies comes up quite a lot. Actually, in the regulatory work that I've done, you would be surprised the number of times that people refer to the impact of flies. Dust, loud agricultural machinery, which ties in, I suppose, to our point about noise and the impact of the accumulation of animal waste, detritus, etc., might impact the wider surroundings. So those would be the types of example that I would give based on my experience over the last number of years. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Jane, can you talk a little bit about who can make it a nuisance claim, who can bring those sorts of claims to the courts? Of course. Um, and that really does depend on the type of nuisance as well. As we've discussed, there, it can be quite different. So firstly, with respect to a private nuisance claim, this can be made by one person against another. A person can bring that type of claim, provided that they have rights that they possess by virtue of their legal ownership of property, and then that's been uh, interfered with. In other words, only those who own freehold to their land or those who occupy a property under a lease. A relative, a friend, or a child who lives with a legal owner or lease occupier is unable to bring that type of claim because they don't have a legal right in the land. When it comes to a public nuisance, uh, these claims are typically made by a local authority against the offending party, though they can also be made by an individual if a public nuisance that also affects a sufficiently large number of people has or is causing them harm. And that's because the essential characteristic of a public nuisance is that it's an interference with a public right and the courts don't prescribe a minimum number of public individuals uh, whose rights have been interfered with. Rather, they consider the interference in the context of the case being heard. And then lastly, statutory nuisance uh, can actually be brought in two different ways, that type of claim. Firstly, by a local authority under Section 80 of the Environmental Protection Act. And then secondly, by a person, including a company, so a local authority has a duty under the Act to investigate a statutory nuisance, for example, as a result of a complaint made by a member of the public, and where it decides there is a nuisance to serve an abatement notice onto the defendant requiring them to stop the nuisance or nuisances. However, an individual might wish to bring a private prosecution against the defendant as an individual, 
And this might be because they've complained to a local authority, and the local authorities decided they don't consider there to be a nuisance. There may also be some cost savings with respect to bringing a private prosecution versus a private nuisance claim. Thanks, uh, Jane. Uh, Tim, can you talk a little bit about what the worst case scenario is for someone who faces one of these nuisance claims? Well, absolutely. The reason that my colleagues and I get involved in working with clients in defending these types of claims is because the worst case scenario is criminal liability. So where there is said to be a statutory or a public nuisance, there can then be a prosecution effectively in the criminal courts on the basis of there being a nuisance. And if in that prosecution for a statutory nuisance, the court finds that there is a nuisance, it can impose a penalty. And that penalty is an unlimited fine in addition to an order to stop the nuisance. Significant thing then being that if you were found to have failed to comply with that, then you can be punished for that separate offence. That can lead to further sanctions, which would include a further fine uh, and any additional costs. And, And costs is quite important in this particular scenario because The current legislation doesn't actually state clearly as a matter of law what happens if a defendant wins. So they successfully defend the case. Well, what happens there? The legislation is quite clear that if a person bringing the case is successful, they'll be entitled to costs from the defendant. But there's no equivalent provision stipulating what's going to happen if the defendant wins. That creates a real imbalance, doesn't it, in the case that we we see dealt with, because the claimant there were able to pursue the claim at, at far less risk than the defendants. Because well, absolutely. They've only got to worry if they're successful, they know they'll get the cost back, but they know they won't have to pay the defendants' costs. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And Tim, again for you, how do the courts decide if the threshold for nuisance has been met? I think the courts will consider whether there has been some encroachment onto the neighbour's land or perhaps direct physical injury to a neighbour's land or interference with uh, a neighbour's quiet enjoyment of that land. Uh, An actual physical damage can be relatively straightforward to identify with evidence to calculate objectively and precisely, of course. Um, So for an oil spill, I suppose, is the example from a neighbour's land. Once the pathway is, is proven, causation nuisance will have been proven, and the court can proceed to calculate the cost of the cleanup and related costs that the defendant must then pay to the claimant. But interference with the enjoyment of the claimant's land requires the court to undertake a more difficult balancing exercise, uh, in our experience, on the, the circumstances of a particular case. And their factors might be, for example, locality of the area, time of the occurrence, the duration, and how often this actually happens in practice, and whether the use of the land is a reasonable use of of the land. So back to our context point. Jane, can you talk about um, a couple of cases that we considered in in preparation for today's podcast to sort of bring to life some of the issues that we're we're talking about and talk about how they might be applicable in the context of nuisance claims in the rural context? Yes, of course. Um, So firstly, there's a case uh, known as Rylands and Fletcher, which isn't strictly actually a, a nuisance claim, but exists within that same nuisance sphere. And that case imposes immediate liability on a landowner if the landowner brings something onto their land that would not normally represent an ordinary use of that land. And if that unordinary thing then goes on to escape and it causes mischief and it escapes and causes foreseeable damage, then the landowner will be automatically liable for damages. 
And that's even the case where the landowner does everything within their power to prevent the unordinary thing from escaping. So it's really important in light of this case that rural landowners consider whether, for example, storing particular chemicals or keeping certain unordinary animals, um, perhaps like an ostrich farm comes to mind, is worth the risk in a particular location. Uh, And the second case is one that listeners may have heard about in the news last year, and that's Fern and Tate Modern Gallery. That case considered a nuisance claim brought by the residents of an apartment block who had asserted that the Tate Modern's newly constructed viewing gallery constituted a nuisance. That was because the attendees at the Tate Modern were able to view directly into the residents' apartments. And the Supreme Court in that case held in favour of the residents and set out further the test that needs to be considered when dealing with private nuisance claims. And as Tim has already mentioned, that then informs whether or not there's a statutory nuisance as well. And those sort of considerations are whether the defendant's ordinary use of the land has caused a substantial interference with the ordinary use of the claimant's land. The nuisance must be a real significant, substantial and material thing. And these are furthering on to the points that Tim has already mentioned, but whether the nuisance must create objective interference, and that's judged by the standards of the ordinary average person in the claimant's position, not by what the claimant found particularly annoying or inconvenient. And then further considering, is the alleged nuisance an ordinary activity for the location? So even if the defendant's activity substantially interferes with the ordinary use and enjoyment of a claimant's land, It will not give rise to liability if that activity is itself no more than an ordinary use of the defendant's own land, so long as it's done reasonably with proper consideration for the interests of their neighbours. And then what is an ordinary use is judged with respect to the character of the locality, and that's quite important for rural landowners. Um, For example, what would be an ordinary use in a heavily agricultural area certainly wouldn't be the same in a metropolitan area. So again, I think we have this this idea of context, don't we? I think, Jane, that's really, really important, actually. And hopefully listeners will be a little bit reassured by that and to say, look, there is a mechanism to take into account the locality and the context and the work that actually is being undertaken and the geographical location of, of where it is being undertaken. Um, Tim, can you talk a little bit about how someone goes about defending one of these nuisance claims if they are the subject of one? I think the first thing to do if you are required to defend a claim is to understand what type of claim it is you are being required to defend. Are we talking about a civil claim for a private nuisance in the civil courts? Significance being, such a claim would be governed by the civil procedure rules. Or are we talking about, for example, a statutory nuisance pursued as a private prosecution? Because that would be in the magistrate's court, and that would be governed according to the criminal procedure rules, and they are very different. So knowing your forum and knowing which procedure rules are are absolutely of the essence. In terms of general defences to think about, the most frequently argued defence, I suppose, in the case of statutory nuisance, is best practical means. So you may be able to rely on this if you can prove that you use best practical means to prevent or, or counteract the nuisance. Um, but it's only available to dust or animals or noise, artificial light or smoke uh, where it arises from industrial premises, which would include farms, though. 
the reasonableness, we've, we've spoken about it before, haven't we? But it may be that you're able to show that this is being caused by a reasonable use of the land having regard to the nature and to the character of the locality. An interesting one is, is also perhaps where the claimant or the prosecutors were, would, would voluntarily assume the nuisance. So you, you've given permission for the nuisance to occur. If you did that, you wouldn't then be able to bring an action for nuisance. Uh, contributory negligence is well known to us all, but there's an element of contributing to nuisance as well. So if a claimant were to act in a way that gave rise to or even perhaps exacerbated the nuisance, um, then you'd have a partial defence there in the same way as you would for contributory negligence. Um, if there is a statutory authority to commit the nuisance, as it were, so if it's authorised by an act of parliament thinking about noise, civil aviation is one. Perhaps the most common one, the Civil Aviation Act from, from back in 1982, you wouldn't be able to bring an action against pilots or companies from flying aircraft uh, over a property above a certain level. So it's anyone who's, who's perhaps on, on a flight path. Similarly, things like delay would be problematic because if you have been using your land for a period of time and there's no action in that intervening time, then that's going to make it very, very difficult for any claim to succeed. Jane, uh, Tim talked about earlier some of the penalties which can uh, come up in, in the case of statute nuisance, cost penalties, and of course, most worryingly, the criminal liability. Can you just talk through very briefly some of the consequences that can arise if we deal with private nuisance claims, for example, some of the other penalties that people may be faced with? Yeah, yes, of course. Um, so firstly, there's an injunction, which is an order made by a court for someone to do or to stop doing something. And obviously, if there's a certain farming activity that the court is suddenly ordering someone to stop, that can present a large problem. There's also damages. And so in a private nuisance claim, those would be awarded if a claimant was successful to compensate for the claimant's loss of enjoyment of their property rights. And depending on the context, those could be quite substantial. So there'd be an addition to the legal cost of defending the claim. Thank you, Jane. Um, so bring this to a close, it'd be really helpful if we have a discussion between the three of us, perhaps come to you first, Tim, about what rural landowners and farmers can do to avoid these types of issues coming up. Because there's no doubt as you know, towns and, and development happens that these tensions and issues are only ever going to sort of increase and become more, more of a risk to farmers. So can we talk a little bit about how to avoid those problems or potential problems becoming these sorts of court proceedings? I think um, certainly awareness of the risks is important and knowledge is power, isn't it? So if you are aware of the nature and extent of your own operation and an awareness of the nature and extent of the people who live around it, perhaps. So where are the risks? Where are the pinch points? What is it that you are doing that might create a risk of this going forward? And what is the nature and extent of the risk, perhaps having regard to the people who live nearby. So thinking about the practical implications of you operating your business and keeping evidence of good practice from anyone, whether that's visits from a local authority or the environment agency, etc. Any evidence that you can show as to the lawful, as you would say, operation of your business will enable you to demonstrate more easily an audit trail, chain of evidence, should you be required to respond in this particular way. So I think understanding where the pinch points are, where the risks might be at their greatest, 
and then being very, very careful to keep that evidence in place should there be any inspections or visits if you you find yourself in this scenario. It's worth um, listeners being aware that, as we've discussed, ordinary and reasonable use of land makes nuisance claims less likely. So, for example, when thinking about developing different agricultural activities on landowners' land, just being conscious of those areas that might be at higher risk of a nuisance claim and thinking about ordinary and reasonable use. So, for example, if there was an area where there was a horse stables that was in proximity to a residential area and there was an intention that that might be replaced with a highly intensive animal farming operation, you know, that's probably not going to be ordinary and reasonable use of that particular piece of land and, and is that the best location? So it's just being alive to that and the potential protection that that can give to landowners. And then I think as well, just getting advice as early as possible, ideally before any nuisance claim has been brought. And that's not just from lawyers, but land agents and planning specialists. So if there is a planning process, we suggest landowners take robust advice at the earliest point. This can just leave the landowner less vulnerable to claims in the future. And they might also have their best practicable means sort of defense already in place if that's been engaged with in the planning process. Look, thank you both. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Edward. Thanks, Edward. Really great to speak with you and Tim today. For those listening, I hope you found there are lots of interesting points to come out of this podcast and lots of really helpful practical advice. Thank you very much for listening again. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Experts in the Field episode from Foot Anstey. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at our website, footanstey.com.